Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. We've got a great guest for you today. Michael Becker joins us as we talk about multifamily investing and his motivations to make the move from being a prominent banker and lender to an investor and syndicator. He is the principal of SPI Advisory Group and the host of the Multifamily Investing Show. Today, he shares his approach that he took when just starting in the business and how it grew over the years. He talks about how to manage your business as it scales up and more. So let's welcome Michael. All right. Today we got Mike Becker with SPI Advisory Group with us. He's also the host of the Multifamily Investing Show podcast. And Mike, you've done a bunch of syndicating down in Dallas and some of the other Southern states. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate AJ and Chris having me on. So yeah, as you mentioned, Michael Becker based in Dallas, Texas. I'm the principal of a company called SPI Advisory. And so we're a multifamily investment firm based here in Dallas. My partner is actually based in Austin. And those are the, the two markets that we focus on. And uh, kind of prior to getting into the multifamily syndication space, my, my professional background is commercial real estate lending. So I was a, a banker loaning money to other people and kind of through that process, realized I was on the wrong side of all these deals. Kind of better to be the borrower than lender. So about 10 years ago, went out and started buying some smaller stuff with my own money. And then that wasn't very scalable. So transitioned about eight years ago, started bought our first multifamily deal, which was a 120 unit deal in Garland, Texas, which is like suburban Dallas, paid 3.8 or $3.9 million. So, you know, kind of 30,000-ish a door and 10,000 units later. And as you mentioned, got a podcast, you know, the multifamily investor show, Michael Becker, it's on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere you probably hear my voice. So 10,000 units later, that's kind of where we sit today talking to you. So happy to talk about anything multifamily today. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. You know, I think we kind of want to start out like, I mean, even before you were in lending or that sort of stuff, like how did you actually get started in, in real estate? That's really, really kind of started just my interest started into, which is by being in, being a banker because, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that really owned anything. You know, my parents owned their home, but they, and they both just kind of worked full time and didn't, you know, kind of middle class and really have a whole lot of background in it from a family standpoint. I'm like, I'm sure my kids are getting right now. I didn't, I didn't really have that. And just kind of went to college and I was in college for a long time. So I kind of kind of did the Tommy boy plan. So I was in uh, kind of my joke is I beat Tommy boy by years and college for eight years. And kind of the last part of that worked full time. I went to night school and, and kind of got out and just got, a, got into banking. I was a retail banker during college. So I do like new accounts and, and things like that. And then I got into the credit department right after I graduated. And uh, that's really when I kind of learned how business actually worked. I didn't really learn a whole lot in college. And then it's kind of just, you know, putting these deals together and then, you know, going from the credit department to being a a loan producer really got to, got a lot of experience kind of putting these deals together and commercial real estate transactions from a lender's perspective, which is, you think about it, guys, it's, you know, 70 to 80% of the money and uh, the capital stack of doing these deals is, is from the debt. So we're a pretty integral part of the whole thing. And, you know, one year, I remember the thing that kind of really kicked me in the butt was I was kind of filing my, my 2010 tax returns, I think, in early 2011. And 
I couldn't even itemize. I was making, you know, made a pretty good living, but I just kind of have my standard deductions and I get all upset and talk to my accountant. He's like, listen, there's nothing I do for you. You're, you're an employee. If you want to save money on taxes, you've got to start a business or own real estate. And that's kind of really what, what spurred me. And at the time, there was a lot of foreclosures and, and things like that on the marketplace, kind of on the early tail end of the Great Recession. So it was a really good opportunity to buy some stuff at pretty attractive prices before it really kind of went up. And like I said, I started in the single family space before I transitioned into larger, larger scale multifamily deals, which, which I probably didn't necessarily need to do with the benefit of hindsight, but it was a pretty good opportunity to kind of crack into the business a little bit smaller dollar amounts and use my own money, a little bit less complicated structures than the stuff that we, we put together today. So it was a pretty, pretty good entree into it, but really just kind of, kind of going to work every day and just paying attention to what the rich guys around me, uh, my clients were, were doing day, day in, day out. Well, that's, that's amazing that like you, you saw through the work that you were doing, like what these other guys were doing and were just like motivated and be like, I want to be more like that. So you said you got started in the like single family space and kind of small first. How yep. long were you in, in that arena? Kind of About two years, over about a two year period, I ended up doing 16 houses. So I'd buy it, renovate it, lease it out, refinance it, take the money, do the next one, kind of just yeah. one after another. So every every couple months I was kind of, you know, really motivated. So just kind of churning through it real quick and getting into the next one. And then, you know, every every bonus I made at the bank, I'd plow it back in and do some more. So, and then once you kind of, and then it started snowballing because then you get all this excess kind of cash flow. Cause at the time, I mean, you could buy a single family house. I think the first one I bought for like 75, $78,000 and put 10 or 15,000 bucks into it. And, you know, so I had maybe 15, 16,000 bucks out of pocket and I refinanced it, got all that money back and did the next one. So, you know, we kind of snowballed relatively quickly, especially when these things were cash flowing 500 bucks at the time. So it months, so kind of, added up pretty quick. So really kind of got addicted to it. And it was a fun, exciting time, actually. Yeah, Mike, Chris Shepard here. Yeah, 10,000 units is extremely impressive. And so, you know, starting out in multifamily, what was kind of that tipping point to move you into, I guess, where you had all of your skills in commercial banking? I just kind of reflected back when, you know, I had a wife, two kids, or pretty young at the time, had a full-time job. I was pretty successful. My job as a really good banker. So I had a lot of stuff on my plate. So then I ended up doing all these little rent houses. So I had to buy them, project manage them, renovate them. And then I self-managed them on top of that. So every time I did one, it was kind of like buying myself a little little job on top of all the other stuff I had on my <laughs> on my plate. So it just really wasn't very scalable. So I kind of hit this fork in the road. And I remember one story. There's There's several similar stories to this, but I remember one of my clients, so, you know, I was a commercial real estate lender loaning on all these kind of broken apartment buildings at the time and kind of bridge loans on these people, putting them, putting them together and renovating them kind of the early, early part of the cycle and made a loan to one of these guys out of an investment club. And there's two guys were buying it. One of them was literally a bus driver. And so there's nothing wrong with being a bus driver, but this guy made, you know, 50 grand a year, 40 grand a year as a bus driver and didn't have much money. He just kind of partnered with another guy somehow, got himself in the middle of his transaction. And I was just thinking to myself, like, if this guy can do it, like, you know, he's a bus driver, like he's got no money, no real experience and no like professional skill sets. If he can do it, what, what am I doing? I'm not utilizing what I have at my disposable, all the relationships, all the connections, all that stuff. I just had to get motivated. So finally kind of maybe take action. And then, you know, at the same time at work, I'm looking at, you know, kind of my career trajectory and I was successful. So I kept trying to get, you know, promoted that you kept trying to promote me at the bank. And I kept like turning it down because I was looking at my boss and my boss's boss and their boss. And 
all I did all day was meetings and HR and writing guys like me if they didn't do their loan production. And it just seemed like a very depressing, you know, career path. So I was in kind of my mid thirties at, at the time when I, when I left and went out on my own. So it kind of felt like that fork in the road that if I didn't take that right now, every year I waited, I get more stock options, kind of make it that much harder, be a year older, just makes it that much harder. So I felt like really real to me that it was like that fork in the road. I had to either jump now or it's going to be, you know, maybe, maybe one of these things that I just regret and never actually take that, that risk, which is pretty hard for like a guy like me being a banker, you know, you kind of been, it gets instilled into you early in your professional career to be conservative. So to kind of go out and take that, that risk was, you know, a pretty big decision, but I had all these single family houses. And then I actually, why I was still a banker, I kind of made my plan and over, you know, eight or 10 month period, we ended up did, we did our first four multifamily deals when I was still employed at the bank. So that kind of gave me a platform to jump off of. So it wasn't kind of like cold turkey, like maybe some other yeah. people. So you're, you're kind of moonlighting a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. I was a, probably a pretty bad employee at the end. <laughs> uh, I had all this other stuff going on in my life. I had a little machine set up at the bank. So I, I had a, a really good pipeline of deals coming in. So kind of, kind of was so able to do you. a little bit of everything. You asked yourself that question, you know, you looked like, I guess, up the elevator on the, on the next floor, see your boss, and you're like, do I really want to be that guy in 10 years? Yeah. And, and, you know, up another floor and asking, do I really want to be that guy in 20 years? And yeah, that, that, that's right. No. That, I just got <laughs> depressed when I started thinking of my future as that. So it really motivated me to get out and get going. And, you know, I just have this kind of motor inside me that I like to accomplish a lot and do a lot of things. And so maybe I'm not always a, the smartest guy out there, but I'm, I, you know, work hard and have a pretty big drive within me. So it was a good combination to go out and, you know, be able to take action. That's awesome. That is, that is a great story, especially for all of our listeners here. You know, a lot of them are real estate professionals and like, we're, you know, just trying to make that next step and figure out how to, how to get into investing. So fast forward a little bit, you're now a full-on syndicator doing large deals and multiple large deals every year, and you've got a full team behind you. Yeah, yeah. So we started out just uh, as my partner and myself, and then we had one employee, which was his buddy that they kind of worked together at their, their previous company. So he worked for a, a broker out of LA that would help high net worth individuals buy properties in Texas, and I made a loan to one of their clients. That's kind of how we met. And then started. So we started out three guys kind of doing some deals. And then all of a sudden you do a bunch of deals and you're like, oh crap, how do I manage all this stuff that we just did? So then it, it, that's been the last, you know, we did those eight years, really kind of last six and a half years. It's how do you systematize and scale all this stuff that, that, that you have on your plate? I mean, as we record it, we're kind of in the first quarter of 2021. And I'm in the middle of doing like somewhere between 13 and 1400 K1s right now because we have all these investors and how the heck do you get through 13, 1400 K1s by February, you know, February 28th. It's, you know, a lot of work. You got to systematize it. So, you know, had some operational help out of the gate, got some kind of scaled up the administrative team because you've got stuff you got to deal with. Then, you know, we got analytical help, asset management help. So kind of, you know, as we would just get all this work and, you know, when you, when you start out, you do do a little bit of everything. You do the $10 hour task, you do the $10,000 hour task. And then, you know, quickly, if you want to grow and scale, you got to find some team members, take the lower value task off your plate. So you focus on the things that really kind of drive revenue and the bigger picture things with that, that, you know, are that day to day, but you, you can't drop the small things or they become big, big problems as well. So kind of trying to manage all that, just, you know, a little bit at a time, either through 
employees or through having you know certain technology and like we have an investor management platform now investor database that kind of helps us when people want to raise money on the front end as well as right now during taxes and store stuff and track tracks things where we started out we had google sheets and excel and now we have something (laughs) that costs a couple thousand bucks a month so if you don't have any asset management revenue coming in or any sort of ongoing fee income, paying that employee and playing that, that database is challenging. So, you know, you grow into it as, as you scale. Yeah. No, I appreciate you uh, sharing that. If you, if you don't mind me asking, like, what is it that you're like personally doing now that are those like $10,000 tasks or that you yeah. like, enjoy doing? Like what's, you, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff I do that I don't enjoy still. So I'm still <laughs> trying to get a lot of that off me, even if I'm Wait, responsible that, that for That never it. stops? <laughs> never stops. As of yet for me, maybe one day I'll, I'll figure it out. But okay. you know, I think, I think I'll answer your question this way. You know, if you're apartment syndicator, you're raising money and buying, buying commercial real estate deals like I do. You know, there's two things, two things that are the most important that drive revenue. You got to find deals and you got to find money, right? So I got to talk to my investors. I got to talk to brokers. I got to source deals. Everything else is noise. You know, it's important. Like I said, you got to do your K1s on time. You got to asset manage a deal, keep the property, you know, on, on track. You got to do all those things, reporting on a monthly basis, all these other payout distributions, all those things that, that we do. But if I'm not talking to broker to find a deal or talking to investors to rate capital, I'm not using my, my highest and best use of my time. So I find myself, I'm not perfect with that because, you know, I'll get sucked down these rabbit holes. But, you know, every time I'm finding myself doing a lot of stuff that doesn't feed one of those two missions, I try to find a way to get that task off of me onto somebody else. That's great advice. Finding out what your top priorities are and then what's not and figuring out how to push that, that other stuff down the line. Appreciate right. that. And you mentioned talking with brokers is one of your tasks. Like I was thinking that would be a great idea to talk about and maybe add some value. We probably have a lot of brokers listening to the show. So some of it may be repetitive, but like when you're out there talking to brokers and looking for deals, like how do you deal with all those contacts? And then like, how do you approach each one? Yeah. So, I mean, it's still a relatively small community at the end of the day, even in one of the largest markets like Dallas-Fort Worth. And then Austin's much smaller than, than Dallas is from, from that perspective. So there's probably eight or eight or nine brokerage shops in town that control 90, 95% of the, the deal flow. I mean, most transactions, you know, the vast majority of them have a broker involved, whether they're on market or off market. It is possible to go direct and we're, we're buying a deal in a couple of weeks direct. But actually today, or earlier today, we closed a deal as, as we record this. And it was, the uh, I think, the ninth transaction I did with this broker. It was probably the second most. I've done more with this, this other broker, but you know, certainly one of my main guys. And, and probably three, the third deal we did in the last seven or eight months. We've been kind of on a little bit of roll with this one broker shop. And you know, I think really a lot of it is, if you're new in the business, you got, you got to kind of get get a relationship started. So I think one of the first things you could do is really just kind of sign up on everyone's list in town. It's not like MLS on the single family side. They, you got to get on the, in the database, start getting these opportunities put in front of you. And then, you know, I think what you do is you go in, you sign the, the CA confidentiality agreement, you download the, the offering package, you underwrite the deal, and then you, you, you set up a tour and you give them feedback. And when you talk to these brokers, you know, you're kind of coming out of the gate. I think, you know, being honest is really kind of the most thing. Because you think about what a broker's job is, at least my perception of the job, is they really have kind of two main functions. You know, they got to get the best economics for for their client, the seller. So price, you know, earnest money, you know, terms, closing shortest times, things like that. 
but kind of one A is is certainty of execution. So they're they got you know especially in an environment like we've been in the last several years, there's a lot of a lot of demand and not as much supply. So they're looking through a relatively large buyer pool, and they got to assess the credibility. So AJ, if you're coming into Dallas, you're trying to buy a multifamily deal, and I'm bidding against you. I've done, you know, 8,000 apartment units in Dallas-Fort Worth or whatever I've owned in Dallas-Fort Worth. I have a very distinct advantage over you than you would over me. So you got to overcome that. you got to be very self-aware about what you, what you start with. And, you know, so you, they, they want to know where's your equity coming from? Where's your debt going to come from? How are you going to manage it? And do you have the skill set to understand what you're doing and credibility to follow through, right? And then once you get those kind of things, that's what you have to portray to the, the brokers and most people coming into a new market is kind of like a process. You know, you're likely not going to win the first deal or first handful of deals you're going to do, but it's about showing up, going in and, and getting in the in the mix, coming into town. If you're out of town, you got to come into town, tour these deals, meet these brokers, kind of establish that relationship. And when you lose a deal, get the feedback loop and say, what can I do better next time? And kind of over, over that process, you'll eventually get one if you kind of stick with it. It could be laborious and frustrating, I'm sure, along the way as well. But if you consistently show up and do the right thing, you'll you'll start getting getting deals tipped your way. And then once you do that first deal, the next one becomes, you know, exponentially easier once you actually own in town and people know your name and then all the other brokers will know that you've actually, you know, bought that hundred and fifty unit deal in, in Dallas and then you'll get, you know, moved up the food chain pretty, pretty quickly. Once you kind of get it done, you know, maybe one little kind of pro tip, just kind of maybe a little tactical thing that you can maybe do, especially if you're, you're a little bit newer to that broker, you know, when you're going out and setting up a tour, maybe set up a tour at like 11 a.m., you know, something like that right before lunch, go kind of tour it. And then when you're done, maybe you can talk to the broker, see if they don't have lunch, maybe go grab a bite to eat with them. And if they don't have a lunch scheduled, which, which they might not, then, you know, that's a good chance to maybe spend an extra 45 minutes an hour with them and you know people do business with people they know like and trust so having those little kind of soft skills and having those little moments where you're not just hammering them for a deal and talking about cap rates and rental rate growth and stuff like that that really goes a long way in this business i, I found that's great that advice. Is a great tip. yeah yeah so i guess when you started your like when you started off like breaking into the Dallas market, how did you get your first deal? What, what was your you experience? Know, you know, I mean, it was 2013, we bought our first deal. So it was a completely different environment than what we found ourselves in last handful of years. So it was easier in certain respects and much harder in different respects. So it was easier because it wasn't, you know, we're kind of on the heels of the Great Recession. So people, prices were a lot lower and wasn't nearly as much competition as the cap rates were, were pretty attractive. But the debt market started loosening up a little bit more where, you know, 2011, 2010, it was a pretty tough environment to get anything done. So the debt started getting a little bit better. Equity started getting a little bit bullish now that we're a few years kind of past the, the worst of the recession. So it was good from that standpoint. But, you know, it was a lot harder to get equity still, even though it was better than a couple of years before. People were still a little skittish and there wasn't quite the popularity of, you know, shows like yours, shows like mine, kind of spreading the word about this business. You know, you have a lot more eyeballs on the space today than a lot more interest with people and a lot more syndicators because of that out there putting these deals together. So, but, you know, today the debt's the debt and the equity are a lot easier than, than what it was then. But, you know, what I had was I had a lot of relationships because I was a lender. I was a pretty prominent lender in the multifamily space in town. I, you know, would do 50 loans a year. So basically closing a, a deal a week and 
you know, if you think about it, brokers don't get paid until the deal closes. The deal's not going to close unless I fund my loan. So that's a pretty integral prior, part to many, many transactions in town. So what I needed to do, Chris, was to get the perception of Michael Becker in the marketplace away from being a lender into being a principal of, of uh, multifamily transactions. And I kind of cap kid, but it's pretty easy to do that. All you do is do a deal and then everyone knows you can do it. So, you know, like I kind of, some of my previous comments really is about kind of getting your equity put together, about getting a source of debt, about getting the management company, about getting the lawyer, kind of your various team members. You got to kind of put your team together and go to the marketplace and, and kind of preach your story to the brokers and show up, participate, be consistent. And eventually you'll get one of those deals done if you, if you kind of have all the, the puzzle pieces in place. And you said there's like eight or nine companies kind of in your area. Is there any one that you like that flocks or gives you more deals than another or is there? Yeah, for, for sure. There's probably for shops we've done the most with and then that's yeah. kind of maybe transitioned a little bit over time. You know, there's so within within our market, most markets I think are very similar, maybe less or more teams depending on the market. But, you know, you'll, you'll have kind of your major shops in our market, you know, a handful, there's eight or nine that can do most of it. But like CBRE is a pretty big shop. Newmark is a big shop. JLL is a big shop. IPA on the, the nicer stuff or Marcus Samilla chapters, a couple of teams on kind of the more workforce housing. And then usually within the teams, they specialize. So some of these bigger teams like CBRE will have the guys that focus on the workforce housing, the guys that focus on the brand new class A institutional, and then maybe some people that kind of cross over where you get in that B to kind of A minus space, depending on the vintage and size. And maybe it's kind of more in the workforce housing group, or maybe it's more in the institutional group. So when you're starting out, really kind of focusing on what you're looking for. And then even within those subset, there's usually a hierarchy of your senior guy, your junior guy, and then maybe someone in the middle. So when you're starting out, really kind of, you're most likely going to go into workforce housing or kind of your class C stuff. So then, you know, when you don't have a name or reputation and you're kind of trying to get your first deal done, you probably don't want to start at the, the most senior guy. You probably want to start with the more junior guy get their attention because they're trying to make a name for themselves within they're, their they're group. They're trying to hustle too, right? That's right. So they're going to be more likely to talk to you and try to figure out a way to bring the buyer to the deal so they can get that feather in their cap and kind of progress their career. Or if you talk to the senior guy that I've been doing deals with for the last decade, you know, that's who I'm going to call. And, you know, we, we have, you know, good. I went to, when, when you could travel and do things, we went to Oktoberfest 2019 with three or four brokers from Dallas and a couple of different teams. And so we all go over there for four or five days and drink beer and, and later hose in and stuff like that. So you're going to have a hard time when you're coming into business cracking with that guy because if there's a good deal or something, he's going to call me or someone like me in the, in the marketplace and spend his time on us because he knows. And if there's someone that's unknown, that seems a little bit less credible, probably kick it to his junior guy. So that's probably the, the place to start. I like that. It's kind of like grow with the uh, the other people that are kind of in your, your same position, right? Like, that's right. And all these guys that are you know, my buddies that are all about my age, they started as a junior guy 15 yeah. years ago and they've kind of grown up in the business. And now, you know, when we also always used to be the young guys, now I'm maybe not the old guy, but I'm kind of, I'm not the young guy any, anymore either. We're kind of right in the middle of our career. So and these guys have all been, you know, basically my age, kind of plus minus a few years and all been in the business around the same time. So how hard would you say it is for somebody new to kind of break into either the Dallas market or a new market anywhere? Dallas is as competitive as anywhere. You know, we also play in Austin, which we've been in Austin for about three years owning stuff. And Austin's even probably more competitive than Dallas in, in a lot of ways, especially the last couple of years. It's a 
much tighter market. Like, you know, Dallas, we have over 800,000 market rate apartment units. Austin has about 200,000. And I joke and every, every, by joke, but it's sort of true. Like every deal in Dallas seemingly trades every three years or in Austin, maybe it trades every seven or eight years. So you have, you know, probably four times the amount of opportunity in Dallas as you would in a market like Austin, just because of the size of the velocity of the, of, of the deals that trade up here. You know, so it's, listen, nothing, nothing's easy if you do it right and you do it well. But if you're going to go in one of these major markets or you go to Atlanta or you go to Phoenix or you go to Charlotte or you go wherever you go, I'm sure there's, there's going to be competition. So it's about finding your angle, kind of starting and working at it and, and being persistent because it's not going to likely, at least if we're anywhere near the environment that we've been in for a while, you're not going to be able to crack that code right, right out of the gate. It's going to take you know, some failure, you working on some stuff, spending a lot of time and then not ultimately getting awarded the deal. And you're going to have to kind of push through that. You know, and now the markets, we're, markets cycle in and out. So maybe we'll have more of a seller's market, more of a down market at some point. So I guess the question is, if you're doing the business, do you have the stones to go in at the bottom of the market when there's a lot of fear out there and actually go to put a deal together? So everyone thinks that they're just going to wait for the correction, but then, you know, it's kind of like catching the fall on knife syndrome. Do you really have the gumption if it's your first deal or your first, can you get the debt? Because the lender is going to be a little bit more critical and in a, in a recessionary environment than they are in a boom environment and who they're going to loan money to. So it's a lot easier to say that I could go buy a deal in 2009 than actually, actually going out and pulling the trigger and doing it at that time. So I don't think it's your question, but those are some of my rambling thoughts, I guess. <laughs> no, it's very good. Oh, I like that a lot. So what do you think your like best tip is for somebody who say wants to get into this business, but they just haven't been able to, to make that move yet. You know, I mean, I think all I can repeat myself on everything else I said, I think all that's some pretty good advice. I go listen to the last 10 minutes of what I just said, but I think really, you know, it's just about, about the drive and it's about, you know, persistence. I think it's a lot of it, you know, and being, being very self-aware of what you have, you know, do you, do you understand the business? You know, if you're not, you need to stop and get educated. You don't want to start talking to a bunch of brokers when you, when you don't know at least the basics of the business, you know, then you just got to really kind of set up, you know, what are the pieces of the puzzle to do a deal? Got to get debt, got to get equity. You got to be able to manage it. You got to have your, kind of your legal team. You got to have all of those things put together on the front end of these deals. You got to be able to front pursuit costs. It's not a no money down, no job, no credit type of deal. That's not this business. So if you don't have some capital accumulated, you need to you need to go to work. You need to earn some money. You need to live below your means. You accumulate some capital, you know, and or you need to then partner someone that believes in you to front that capital for the earnest money for the lender deposit. You know, and depending on the size of deal you want to do, the bigger the deals, the price of poker goes up. You know, you're not not putting a hundred thousand of earnest money down. You're putting a million of earnest money down as you these deal size get up. You're not putting, you know, five, ten thousand dollars as a lender deposit. You're sometimes putting seventy, eighty thousand dollars down as a lender deposit. So depending on the the size of the deal, just being very self-aware about what you have. And if you don't have it, either you need to go accumulate it over some time or find a partner that you bring in that that can kind of bring the the missing piece that that you don't have. Speaking about partners, I know that there's a lot of people in this business that have mentors or use mentors or partners and that sort of aspect. Like sure. Have you engaged with a mentor in the past? And if so, like what was that experience like? And did you, did you like it? I got my education in the business. I got paid to get an education by, by being a vendor, which, which was good. Yeah. But I have seen, and a lot of people be extremely successful if they just kind of hire someone that's got these like a mentoring program. There's a lot of them out there. So yeah. 
kind of kind of you need to make sure you get with the right one. So if you get with the right one, you know, I think what they what they really bring to the table are kind of two two things really. You know, certainly the education. So if you're an IT engineer or you're a salesperson and have a pretty good salary and get some money in the bank, but you know nothing about the business, it's a good way to learn kind of the blocking and tackling and how to do this right and really kind of shortcut it. But more so than that, in my mind, if you have the right one, they have like these ecosystems a part of it where you get like all these other members within the same organization and a lot of these people are passives. So you got an automatic pool of people you can you know go form relationships with and then raise capital out of, as well as you got all these other people that are aspiring to be apartment syndicators that you can then form these relationships, join you know joint venture in these deals, have a partnership, and kind of you know start a business together, kind of similar to what I what I was able to do with my partner Sean. Kind of accidentally, you can do that a little bit more intentionally, and that's a good way to kind of get a lot of this stuff. Plus, in the room. Typically, you can find, you know, not only the, the equity like we talked about, but there'll be service providers from management companies to lenders to lawyers to insurance brokers, or you have people that have done deals that you can ask for referrals. So it's a good way to kind of shortcut the, pro- the process. And the ones that I think are a little bit more successful and better programs, they're not cheap. You know, I think a lot of these are kind of twenty to $30,000 is kind of the price of poker to get in. But if you're able to go out and buy a 10 or $15 million deal pretty early in your career. I mean, shoot, it's, it's you'll make all your money back plus plus if you're able to actually accomplish a deal. So if you're certainly motivated and you know you're going to take action, I think that's a pretty good way for some somebody that's like a salesperson or an engineer or someone without an industry background like I had to, to break into the business. So, I mean, with how competitive the marketplace is and how you know saturated it is and with cap rates where they are and interest rates where they are, like what do you see, you know, coming down the pipeline? Do you think that cap rates are going to compress even further? Interest rates are going to go down lower and we're just going to see the dollar per door keep going up? Uh, So I I think a lot of it is, you know, market dependent, obviously Uh, real estate is local. So depending on what market you're in, I'm, talking to you from my office in Dallas, Texas, and if I sat and owned a big portfolio in San Francisco or New York City, I'd probably have a different opinion of that <laughs> same story right yeah, now. Absolutely. So so from from my perspective, if you're in a high growth market, business friendly, landlord friendly, you know, population and migration, you know, corporate reloads, stuff like that, like the Texas markets generally are and places like Phoenix and the Carolinas and, and Georgia and Florida and you know markets markets along those lines. I mean, yeah, I, I think if you look at it, I mean, at the time I've been doing this, especially in the workforce housing, you know, I've been saying this, these numbers might be a little low at this point, but the time I owned workforce housing, I mean, it was rents have doubled and prices have tripled in, in Dallas, basically. And I think in the process of currently accelerating that right now, I, I'm seeing prices accelerate because, you know, with the function of, you know, cap rates are function of kind of demand that comes in. And then part of that demand is really driven by the interest rates out there. It's not perfectly correlated, but you know, these interest rates are, you know, you can borrow money around 3% today where when I first got in the business is around 5% and you could get, you know, five, five plus years of interest only on these loans. When I got in the business, you're, you're happy to get one year of interest only borrowing it. And a few years before there was no interest only, right. And it was 6%. And so that the debt's so much more attractive, but I mean, you look at our, I kind of where I think the peak was uh, kind of pre Great Recession, you know, where the spread was a, the narrowest between you know kind of the alternative, right? So the world's awash with capital and looking for investment opportunities, 
And you know, one of the things that people can benchmark commercial real estate to, the cap rates to, is say the 10-year treasury, where if you go back to say 06 or early 07, that spread was probably within 1% or 100 basis points where you know the 10-year treasury was kind of in the mid sixes and the cap rates were kind of you know high sixes, low sevens, generally speaking, kind of nationwide. Where you fast forward today, you know, the cap rates have compressed quite a bit, but probably let's call it a generic deal in Dallas, Texas. When I first started, it might have been you know, the workforce housing was kind of north of an eight cap. Now today it's kind of mid fours, maybe, maybe high, high fours. But, you know, our 10-year treasury, as we record this, is somewhere around 115 to 120, 1.2%, give or take. So, you know, you still have a 300 plus, maybe 300, a 350 basis point or 3.5% spread between the 10-year treasury and generic cap rate in Dallas. So that is three times or more what it was when at the peak. So I don't think that the cap rates, looking at it from that metric, or out of whack relative to your alternative where you can put your capital. And I don't think interest rates really going to run because, you know, got two things that that lead me to believe that is one, Jay Powell says he's not going to raise interest rates for at least two or three years. And if you ever try to short a stock over the last, you know, say 12 months, you'll find out it's really hard to to fight the Fed when they want stuff to go up. He's going to keep it, keep it low. Two, I think he also said the long end of the curves of the 10 year treasury, I think he's already said he's going to kind of put a cap on that. So I don't think you really see the 10 year treasury now that it's kind of risen quite a bit. It was probably around 60 basis points at, at the low in COVID. Now it's, you know, basically doubled at one, you know, 1.2% roughly as we record this right now. I don't think he's going to let it go past one and a half percent. Plus, you still could look over to, Europe or Japan, you got a whole lot of zero to negative interest rates, mm-hmm. sovereign debt there. So it's going to look pretty attractive if we start getting into, you know, 175 or 2% interest rate, 10 year treasury. I think the foreign demand will pick up plus the Fed. I think we'll just print money, monetize it, and, and buy the treasury rate. So yeah, I think if you're going to ask me as crazy as it sounds, I think currently <laughs> the process of cap rates compressing, like in real time in front of me in the markets I look at. And I think that you're more likely to see cap rates go lower than you do go higher. I think that's a great answer. And Dallas has been in like the top five for in, in, in migration too, in the last like. Oh yeah. It's I think number two right now. And it's been, you know, consistently in the, I think Phoenix is kind of Phoenix is like the new boom town. I mean, Phoenix is, because Phoenix didn't do anything for eight, 10 years. And all of a sudden the last two or three, it's really, it's really kind of kicked into high gear. AJ and I are both from Arizona. Well, grew up there and, grew up in Tucson and Tucson is like the ugly stepsister that just got <laughs> left behind and Phoenix is the prom queen currently. Oh yeah. It's the hottest market in, in America right now for multifamily and got a lot of, it's a lot more diverse today than what it, what it was, you know, 15, 16 years ago it was really kind of where old people go retire and they built a bunch of single family homes in the middle of the desert. And that's seemingly what the economy was out there. And it's really, really grown and got diversified. And so I think a market like that's a really good example. You know, I'm, I'm Texas based, but that's a great market where, you know, if you, they see tremendous amount of rent growth and population growth and it's a play off of California, people fleeing higher regulated, higher housing costs, higher tax location. And Phoenix looks like a hell of a deal compared to Los Angeles for a lot of people. And that's really fueled a lot of the growth. So I think if you're in one of those kind of on markets, like like the Texas markets, Florida, Arizona, the Carolinas, I think you got a, a hell of a good run ahead of you. You know, had a good run. I think you still got another decade, maybe more of these positive demographic wins at your back. So I'm bullish. I think it's going to be a, a great asset class and continue to be for many, many years. So we're actively trying to grow and expand. And as I mentioned about four hours ago, we just bought a 
250 unit deal in a suburban Dallas. So it's we kind of put our money where our mouth is. Yeah, congrats. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah. Well, we're getting a little pressed on time. How about we get to the, the last four questions? Cool, let's do it. All right. So the, the first one is, is what's one piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? You know, I mean, I think I don't have too many regrets. I mean, obviously, like most people, I wish I would have started a little bit earlier. You know, I think I heard a Warren Buffett quote, you know, it's not so much about timing the market, it's more about time in the market. So I think if you can get started a little bit early, real estate's a really forgiving business. And, you know, I think, you know, but if you just kind of own real estate over longer periods of time, that's where I've seen a lot of a lot of wealth created both, you know, personally, as well as just observing others. So I think it started being a little bit more intentional. I, I screwed around college. Like I said, I was kind of, kind of Tommy boy part two. So I wish I would have been maybe a little bit more focused when I was a little bit younger, but at the end of the day, that, you know, kind of led me to, to where I am today. So I don't have too, too many regrets. Awesome. So what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? You know, I mean, I always kind of worked from a young age and, you know, would mow yards when I was before that, before I actually professionally started working. So maybe I'd say that. And then uh, outside of that, really, real estate was my first serious one when I bought a three-bed, two-bath house in suburban Dallas in 2010 or 2011, whenever I bought that. That was really kind of my first thing. I was, uh, I really had the employee mindset up until that point. Yeah. Cool. And then how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? You know, the formal training certainly got me repetition. I got to learn the business on other people's nickel. And then, you know, I had to go out and take the jump and actually go out and do it. So it gave me the confidence from that standpoint that I got, kind of knew what I was talking about and seen a lot of deals and did a lot of transactions. My college and high school really didn't do a whole lot for me. Personally, maybe other people uh, get a little bit more out of it. But, it, you know, I walk out of college not knowing really how business works, even though I had a finance degree. So really, I would say my, my work and, and going in the bank and really seeing how these deals are put together from a banker's perspective was, was invaluable starting out. You had a great work experience that tied really well into kind of what you're doing now, which yep. uh, is, is super beneficial. Follow up on that a little bit more. Like as your business scaled, like once you got to that thousand units and then 5,000 units and 10,000 units, like how did you learn what to do? Like how to handle you know, all of your systems breaking. Yeah, it wasn't very well. It wasn't a very a smooth process for sure. You know, a lot of us were like, oh crap, this, this sucks. But, you know, one thing that I think we did really well was every time we did a transaction, we would do a postmortem on it. So like kind of go back and say, okay, what worked well? What didn't work well? What do we want to adapt and change? And then that was really kind of great because at the beginning there was a whole lot of like, that was great, but let's never do that again, you know, because that was... <laughs> Uh, that worked out, but let's never do that again because that was a little bit, a little bit scary. So then you just kind of find little better ways of, of doing it along the time, along the way. And then we hired, uh, you know, so our director of operations now, a lady who was an IT project manager, and she was really able to kind of take our whole thing and systematize it, you know, process by process, and document it, and tweak it, and approve it, and make sure we're super efficient. So having her come in really was a godsend. Really helped us systematize, you know, section by section, our, our whole business. And we're still, you know, we still do those things. We still try to improve. Luckily today, the enhancements are very, very minor relative to what they were at the beginning. <laughs> the, the iteration is not as a big jump. No, yeah, thank, thank goodness. And then, you know, just because just we do something a certain way doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way. We're always yeah. trying to find a better way. And we have a certain investor management portal that we use now. And it's not maybe the best thing in all respects. So we're probably going to maybe try to find some, some different one. And, you know, we got a pretty good price on the one we have now. And it might, 
double our cost, but if it's a better thing and it saves a lot of manpower, you know, not, nothing's free, right? So if I got to pay a little bit more in software, I'm paying for it now with inefficient manpower and trying to find workarounds on, on the broken system a little bit. So, you know, it's always kind of the cost benefit analysis. And that was really a big mindset shift when, you know, you, you start out, you don't have a lot of resources and you got to kind of bootstrap everything. But once you start getting a little bit more resources and revenue coming in on a recurring predictable basis, you know, maybe sometimes you got to spend a little bit of money to, to make a even, you know, even more money where at the beginning you're worried about every single dollar, but not miss, maybe necessarily thinking about, well, what's, what's this dollar of expense going to come back in, in revenue because you're just worried about outlaying that dollar. Yeah. So you're not going back to Google Sheets? That's, that's right. We still use it for certain things, but yeah, we're not going to go back to Google Sheets for a database. <laughs> All right. And our final question. What was your Moby Dick of real estate, the one that got away? You know, I mean, I think I could tell you any deal we didn't buy was was one that we should have bought because the market just <laughs> exploded. I'll answer it this way. I'll say you asked me that question before we recorded. Started thinking about, you know, we actually ended up not hiring a guy that I probably should have hired. A, a guy came to me, got him James Ng, who was a banker for GE and asked me to hire him. And we didn't want to pay him at the time. And he probably was going to be a guy that wanted to get some equity in these deals. And I don't want to give up equity more than we already had. So I ended up referring him to Paul Peoples at Old Capital, commercial mortgage broker here. And you now he's kind of the national director and runs that whole company and is really systematized and is an absolute killer. And if I would have hired him, I'm sure he would have done great things for my company as well. So kind of passed on, passed on a guy that probably probably should have hired. Now he makes a bajillion dollars doing, doing that. And, you know, certainly couldn't afford a, a guy like him at, at this point being as accomplished he is. And, you know, real estate deals kind of come and go. And, you know, I can certainly tell you a thousand deals that we should have bought, but, you know, if I would have bought this one deal, I wouldn't have bought the next one I did, you know, so I don't have too many regrets because, because, you know, certainly I could give you like, you know, a hundred at least that, that we should have purchased at the time that, that we didn't. And some of these are, you know, like, oh, I couldn't pay another a hundred thousand into, a ten or eleven million dollar deal that they end, the next guy ended up buying it for ten million one hundred thousand dollars and sold it three years later for seventeen eighteen million bucks. I could, uh, I could certainly uh, tell you deal after deal, <laughs> but I didn't buy that one deal over a hundred thousand. But I bought the next deal a month later that turned out to be pretty good. So I think you know it's been a pretty good run and not not too many regrets from that standpoint. That's awesome. I really like your answer of like you know you missed out on like that person where you at the time it was very difficult to comprehend like giving up that much but yeah like one of you know my brother and I's things that we've like looked back on is we we wish we would have hired more employees sooner yeah like when we were first starting out it was we were grasping for that that dollar of revenue because it you know we needed it to fuel the company to to grow and like passing off a little bit more of that money to some people for some help would have really kind of like got that flywheel spinning just a little bit quicker, a little bit faster. Yep. yep. And you know, the biggest, I found the biggest cost in my life is opportunity costs. If I spend time on this one thing, it's the expense of another thing. Or if I, you know, don't invest in this product or tool or employee, it, you know, I'm paying for it. Like nothing's free. I'm paying for it in another way, either with yeah. my time or maybe missing out on a deal or being inefficient or whatever it is. So just trying to be self-critical and always, always grow. And, you know, we're not perfect. And even the most successful guys in our business have sure made a bajillion mistakes on, on top of that. But, you know, it's about, about learning from your mistakes and, and getting better. And fortunately now I feel, not going to I feel like the mistakes we make now are, are you know, really, really small relative to some of the early things we did. But, you know, the early deals we did were 
such home runs because because the market was so favorable. So it, you know, it all worked out. It's been been a hell of a run. Well, awesome. Pretty well, incredible story. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, well, Michael, thank out. you very much for coming on Real Estate Investors Podcast and. You know, just really, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, do you want to give out some information yeah. that they can contact you with? Yeah, I'll give everyone two resources. So if you you listen this long, you're probably super into real estate and probably an apartment nerd. So if you like this show, I'd certainly suggest you check out my show, which is the Multifamily Investing Show of Michael Becker. It's on uh, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, probably anywhere you hear my voice. Or we are, our website is www.multifamilyinvestingshow.com. It's a pretty highly produced show. I film in a studio, try to have pretty high level guests on, you know, brokers I do business with, other large owners, people that, you know, done billions and billions of dollars in transactions. Hopefully it's kind of, if a lot of the other shows are kind of like high school, this is like graduate level is what I'm at least aiming for. I'm sure I'm not hitting the mark exactly. Or the other resource really is my, my company is that I run is SPI Advisory. You can find us at our website, which is www.spiadvisory.com. That's SPI, like spy, advisory.com there. There's a contact us form. You fill that out. I'm always happy to send out some information about potentially working with us. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Mike. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.